Hello, one and all, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where we traverse deep into the cracks and crevices of history to mine out some juicy stories of the niche and obscure from history. I am your host, Kelvin, he, him pronouns, and joining me today are my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-hosts. Say hi. Hello. Hello. I'm Ryan, I'm pronouns. Welcome. I'm Jamie. She/her pronouns. <laughs> Welcome back. It took a little bit, but we got there. Uh, <laughs> Welcome back to the show, both of you. How are we doing today? Are we doing good? Doing pretty good. That's good to hear, because today. We will be discussing a topic that uh, I find very near and dear to my heart. And so hopefully y'all will also be excited. And uh, you will already know this about me, but for our listeners who don't know me as a real person, um, I'm going to drop a little bit of lore about me. I, Kelvin, used to compete in fencing in high school and in college for a bit um but that was all before the worldwide pandemic of course but and uh but not to brag but i was uh pretty good at it if i do say so myself and uh it's a bit of a technical sport with a bunch of history strategy and theory and all those buzzwords but uh you know, part of the appeal of it is that it has a very long history as a sport. And uh, going all the way back to, like, medieval times and even beyond, if you want to keep going further. And so, uh, that's what today's episode will be, is a deep dive into the origins of the sport and the history of dueling. How's that sound? Sounds fancy. Alrighty. So, without further ado, on guard! Let's dive down the rabbit hole. None shall pass. What? None shall pass. I have no quarrel with you, good Sir Knight, but I must cross this bridge. Then you shall die. I command you, as King of the Britons, to stand aside. I move for no man. So be it. worthy adversary. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. But what's that, then? I've heard worse. You liar. Come on, you pansy. <laughs> Victory is mine. We thank thee, Lord, that in thy mouth... <laughs> Come on, then. What? Have at you. You are indeed brave tonight, but the fight is mine. Oh, and enough, eh? Look, you stupid bastard, you've got no arms left. Yes, I have. Look! It's just a flesh wound. Look, stop that! Chicken! Chicken! Look, I'll have your leg! Right! Right, I'll do you for that. You what? Come here! What are you gonna do? Bleed on me? I'm invincible! You're a loony. The Black Knight always triumphs! How are you? Come on, then. All right. We'll call it a draw. Have you all seen me fence? I don't remember if you've ever been to any of my... 
competitions. I've seen you practice a couple times back in high school. Right. But I never saw you actually compete. Mm. Yeah, I'm the same way. Well, y'all missed out, I'm just going to (laughs) say. No, it... It was not a supportive friend. Oh, it's fine. Uh, No, fencing does struggle a bit as there is a bit of a learning curve for the spectators um, in order for it to, like, truly understand what's going on sometimes. Um, But, you know, we'll explain the rules of stuff later. But it's a fun sport, obviously. I like doing it, so I'm going to think it was fun. Um, It's a sport where you get to stab people, you know? And swords are just cool. It's human nature to just think swords are cool. Um, (laughs) I mean, we've been using them for a very long time, like Bronze Age, long time ago. And they're in all different parts of the world, has different traditions with it, and different cultures usually establish some sort of like spiritual connection with it. So swords are very important to humans, but because the sport of Olympic fencing stems from European traditions of sword play, that's where a lot of my knowledge and by extension, the knowledge that is going to be inside this episode comes from. So That's a little bit of a disclaimer, I guess, for, you know, hashtag Eurocentrism. Um, If you like katanas, we're not going to get a lot into that in this episode, unfortunately. But we'll just start off, I guess, with a brief history of swords. Um, So, like I said, used a long time ago, Bronze Age, you got like Greece and Egypt Using these bladed weapons, you know, they slash people. A couple centuries go by, you know, we get better at killing people. We find out better ways to build weapons. We discover that bronze is not as good as iron, that sort of thing. And they also realize that stabbing works better than cutting people, you know, just how it works. Then you get to like the medieval era. And swords start to get larger and larger to where you get like these, they're called two-handed swords or um, some specific types would be like claymores or bastard swords. They are these huge, gigantic pieces of metal that are used basically like can openers because in medieval era you got, you know, the giant plate mail suits of armor and you can't really cut people through it so you just gotta cut them out of it and whack them with really big sticks yeah it's just it's more of a bludgeon at that point right right and so uh they these swords truly get gigantic um but after the middle ages end And uh, people find out you can use guns and are a thing um, and other ranged weapons like that. Heavy plates of armor kind of become useless and actually more of a hindrance whenever you need to prioritize speed and agility to get out of the way of a bullet. And so... um, you start to see swords shrink down again, become more slender and nimble till you get to around the current common size of about a meter long for a sword. And um, as the guns and gunpowder weapons begin advancing more and more, you know, the saying video killed the radio star and, Swords eventually become more ceremonial, and then oh, in, you get to a modern day whenever no one carries around swords anymore, unless you're 
doing it for the vibes, I guess. But there was a period of time in there where, you know, people were carrying around swords. I say people, I mean like nobles and the people that had money to afford a sword, but uh, you know, they were carrying them around on their person pretty much every day and it was like partially fashion statement partially self-defense so yeah any questions i like how with all things it always seems like everything gets bigger and bigger and then all of a sudden they're like you know this is a little unwieldy maybe we should make it a little bit more reasonable right it's kind of like how like phones got to like the sizes of pop tarts there for a bit, right? And then now yeah, we're back down exactly. to folding phones again. So yeah, and I'm trying to send a picture in the group chat as well, but oh, it, it may not be going through. But it's just one of those examples of like a huge, huge broadsword that was just meant for more like ceremonial, like parades and stuff like that. Of just like look at the power of this man. Yeah, that I, I just got the picture, and that is... Uh... That's a big word. So, for the listeners out there, that's a seven-foot-tall broadsword that just dwarfs any person standing next to it, and so, obviously, the whole point is that you can't really use that, because that thing, like, just... I mean, you get slashed down by anything whenever you're just trying to swing it at anybody, but just the, the girth of this boy... <laughs> Yeah, that that is definitely some high middle ages stuff right there. And I'll put a I'll put this picture down in the show notes for our listeners. But uh continuing on, I've talked enough about swords at this point. Uh how do we use the swords is the next question and uh more importantly to the history of fencing, we have this little thing called a duel, if you will. Why did people do that? Like, what's that whole thing? Because if duels to our modern brains are a very weird and absurd thing, right? Like, you don't see people going around feeling besmirched for their honor or the honor of their woman. And I'm going to throw the gauntlet down at you, sir, and let's go meet up and try to kill each other, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually I actually heard some stories recently about some in this same kind of vein. Uh, it was, this story was specifically about, like, one of the first female serial killers in Europe. Okay. And it was, the whole thing was she was this housemaid for someone and her and a group of friends supposedly broke in, you know, trying to steal some goods, whatever, and three people in the house ended up dead. And, you know, they go to, she goes to trial. She says that all these other people were involved. Nobody else says, you know, they were there. She admits fully that she was there and that she was a part of it, but it was that she was trying to prove other people's involvement. And it came down to she was going to be killed no matter what because of the law at the time, no matter if she she was involved by just by herself or with other people. But it's public appearances that mattered so much. Of She may be, you know, set to be murdered or be killed by the state, but it mattered so much to her that her name was cleared of murder. It was only that she stole from someone, but she was still going to be killed. It like goes back to an old sense of like honor and like uh, public images, I guess, of people. Like public respect, perception of yourself was so much more important. Like, like you said, if you're besmirched, it turns into a killable offense. Right, right. Um, very interesting. Of like, they used to mean so much more. Like, if your honor was was you know ruined by someone, then that was you know the end of your career, your the end of your life. Yeah, exactly. And we'll get like more into like the specifics of how codes of honor and those notions developed here in a second. But that that story you were telling, like they would 
they don't care that they're going to die. It's as long as they have a good name going up to that point is all that matters is totally 100% fits in. So yeah, how do those notions kind of develop in coordination with people fighting each other over it in these highly ritualized manners? So going back to the Middle Ages, um, you start seeing these developments of a very strict prevailing social hierarchy with, you know, like it's... um, philosophers at the time called it the great chain of being and so you have like god at the top then the angels kings nobles peasants animals plants you know so on down the line of stuff till you get to like pond scum well we only care about human relationships in this sense and they were encompassed by like feudalism which is the overarching social economic system at the time of these individual relationships between these different social strata determines everything about the person is all in relation to your position on this ladder to someone else And in this hierarchy, any disputes, first thing that you go to is that they are automatically resolved by status. So, like, a noble's opinion on anything always trumps that of a peasant. Doesn't matter who's actually correct or truthful in that situation, a noble's lie is always better than a peasant's truth. And so that solves, you know, 75% of all your questions right there. That's the worldview you're operating under of any sort of disputes. And so the only question that remains comes from what happens if something, some sort of dispute or disagreement occurs between people on the same social plane. So two nobles get into a fight with one another. Well, one solution they came up with, uh, and that worked for a pretty long time, was the concept of trial by combat, which most people have heard of. So, I've heard of it, so. It's so, uh, yeah, so it's, for those who haven't, trial by combat is an alternative judicial mechanism of resolving disputes outside of the courts. So the premise of how it works is you have two, let's say, supposedly honorable gentlemen who have, you know, these opposing claims, like person one argues, this guy over here, he did this thing. Person two says, nuh-uh. Well, if you're both honorable, you know, who can we trust? And back then, forensic evidence, you know, isn't necessarily as good as we got it now. You know, DNA wasn't a thing. Um, We didn't have TV cameras everywhere. Um And so who else would know the truth other than God? Well, you know, God, and this is the Christian God, um, because it is Europe in the Middle Ages. um, Well, God would never let a good person who is innocent be punished for any sort of reason. And so if you just have these two guys battled to the death that God will obviously intervene and protect the virtuous one and let whoever was being false and telling a lie, they will perish because God will intervene and let the correct victor survive 
basically. Makes sense, right? Of course. Flawless thought process. And uh, it became a very common practice in the Germanic realms after the collapse of the Roman Empire and throughout the early Middle Ages. So it, say, about 600 AD to about 1300 AD. And uh, this practice would eventually be replaced by juries because people began questioning the whole thing of like, uh, hey, you know, this really isn't a question of guilt. It's just a trial by combat. It's just more of a test to see who is better at killing the other person. And yeah, but it's more fun. Right, right. Totally. And uh, but to see the church also started getting mad at it because they didn't like the whole idea of putting God to a test to see who he likes more. And so after that point, trial by combat starts to fade away. But one of the most famous trials by combat, uh, I'll tell you this story, was a duel between, and pardon my French because I can't speak French, uh, Sir Jean de Corogue and Jacques Legree. Uh, it occurred in... Thir- Very French name. Exactly. Uh, it was in 1386 in France, of course. And uh, this duel is like famous enough to where uh, a couple of years ago they made a movie about it starring Adam Driver and Matt Damon called The Last Duel. I don't know if either of you have seen that one have not i obviously know those two actors very well but i've not heard of that movie well uh brief summary Uh, it it goes the movie's pretty boring (laughs) i will say i was not a fan (laughs) (laughs) but uh it tells the gist of the story here spoiler alert i guess for a couple year old movie and a 700 year old event in the news i guess so the whole gist of their feud was sir jean de Caro. uh he accused jacques legree of raping his wife uh who was named margaret and uh after they went to court it was decided that there wasn't enough evidence on either side to tell who was lying and they decided that trial by combat was the way to go they play it up a lot in the movie and uh but apparently a main factor of this who knows who's telling the truth sort of deal uh was that marguerite she got pregnant and you cannot get pregnant if you're raped because God only makes babies out of love, apparently. Hmm. And so if she had a baby, then she wasn't raped. Well, if the baby was Legree's, she would couldn't have been raped. It was just they had an affair in which it's her fault because we love hmm. trusting women. Yeah, no, it weird, weird medieval event. But anyways, try by combat happens. And also Marguerite's life is on the line because uh, if her husband dies in trial by combat, that would mean she's also lying about the rape, which means that she has to be put to death for the crime of being a false accuser. So, um, yeah, a lot of stress, you can imagine. Wow. And uh, long story short, after their quick battle in front of the entire French court of nobility, 
Sir Jean de Corot emerged victorious, and his wife Marguerite was spared. So a happy ending, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but even though this film was called The Last Duel, the actual last trials by combat, while infrequent past the 1300s, they didn't really stop until the early 1600s. And so, in combination, another t- around this time period, um, another term you might be familiar with is uh, the Code of Chivalry. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, you know, chivalry isn't dead. It's pretty dead because it mm-hmm. only applied to knights. And uh, we don't have a whole... I mean, we technically have knighthoods, I guess, still, but, like... They're not running around doing night stuff for the most part. Now it's more of a milady kind of. Yes, a milady. Well, that's a fundamental part of it is because like a lot of it is the knightly classes interaction with women. It, being chivalrous was like a characteristic of knighthood. It was like very fundamental, even though it's like this vague concept you know, it basically it's like honor and ju- it just rules governing their relationships. Cause like we said, that's all this is. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the most important thing were these relationships. There's some theory that like the church kind of wrote these rules of chivalry to keep knights from just going around killing people and just being violent in general, especially towards women. But, like, these tenets that became what people would call chivalrous or uh, parts of the code of chivalry, um, they were very popularized by romance novels from that time period. And so, it whenever I say romance novels, it's not like, you know, the smut that you would read and find a whole lot in bookstores nowadays. Um, Not that there's any shame with that kind of book, but uh, it's more of like King Arthur and the round table type of stuff. Yeah, that kind of stuff would get you like ostracized back then. (laughs) I mean, yeah. uh, Yeah, it would be a very interesting thing to see someone attempt to read a modern book of I uh, like fifty shades of gray or something, you know. It's like it's yep. like it's like giving a caveman a Dorito. They would just straight up die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's like have you guys seen those TikToks of like things that I think would send a Victorian child into like a coma or something? Yeah, yeah. Like that's one of those things. <laughs> yeah, one of those just like a sparkling water or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so yeah but anyways uh these romance novels and the church and just these interactions with people develop this sort of loose code of chivalry and these notions of honor that would come to dominate the social interactions between noble and knight- knightly classes of Europe And then, as time progresses, they get even more reinforced as the eras that they were developed in become romanticized. And, you know, there's ideation and longing for the nostalgia of these knightly ages in later eras. And so then they get doubly reinforced. So... Like I said, these notions are exceedingly vague. Like, whenever people say honor or chivalry, we kind of just expect them to know what we're talking about. Um, Wikipedia describes honor as, quote, the idea of a bond between an individual and a society as a quality of a person that is both of social teaching 
and of personal ethos that manifests itself into a code of conduct. Hmm. Which All right. means Lots nothing. <laughs> like, it doesn't, like, sure, I guess, yeah, that is what it is if you had to make a definition for it, right? But, like... Yeah, because it's such a personal, I guess, personal thing of just, like, everyone has their own understanding, so you can't put one definition on it. Exactly. It's honor is whatever society says it is, basically, and that it makes rules that govern honor. And, um, you know, we we don't necessarily give that much weight to honor in it of itself in most parts of modern society. Um, personally, my hypothesis for why that is the case is because modern society is so averse to the flip side of honor, which is shame. Um, and we just don't like shaming people and so honoring isn't you know being honorable isn't necessarily weighted as highly um but that's just a personal theory you know um also part of it is probably because social mobility is much more fluid now and a lot of what honor and etiquette it was was basically just rules and conduct to gatekeep lower classes from being able to move up in the world and so because we are rich people and we do this thing we are better because we do this thing instead of because we are rich you know um it's a whole weird displacement thing so not to say that honor still isn't a value that people hold. Definitely depends on what part of the world you're in, but it's definitely not as strong as it used to be. Like, no one's gonna protect their honor to the point of death. Right. Yeah. <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> yeah, for, for the most part. Um, so, the logic of... This time period, though, was that if you've besmirched Ryan and Jamie, if you, too, have besmirched my honor, and if I truly have honor, I cannot let that stand. I will demand an apology from the both of you, but if you do not give it to me, either you must be punished by dying at my hand, or... I will do myself even more honor because I am an honorable man by fighting you and being ready to die trying to defend my honor. I don't have to die, but the fact that I was willing to do so is honorable in and of itself. <laughs> and uh, even you two, the offending parties in this situation, would have to maintain your honor against being called a coward should you refuse to duel me to protect my honor. And so you have to say yes. And now we're trapped in the situation where we both have to kill the other person. <laughs> and so, right. uh, you know, and then after a certain point, these rules about how we have to kill each other now becomes ritualized and... That's how we start getting the notions of a proper duel where, you know, you throw down the gauntlet or I slap you across the face and we draw pistols in the park at dawn or whatever, right? Whatever Hamilton the musical said. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> and so uh, the high watermark of duels and dueling culture in terms of the number of people openly participating in combat with each other in the streets was from about 1550 
to 1750s. So about a 200 year span there. Long time. Yes. Um, The thing is, this entire time, for the most part, dueling was illegal by the books. But it was so ingrained in the culture, people just didn't care. Yeah. Like, it was... It was it was basically a minefield of navigating the society because these notions of honor had become so like throughout society. Everyone was so worried about honor and there were rules in polite society about how to interact with all types of people and all types of social situations. And that if you mess up at any point, you had the possibility of dying so it was like, it was even to the point of like, if you are having a conversation with someone and you rest your hand on your sword as just like you put your hand there because you don't know what to do with your hands, the other person is like, oh, you want to fight? Let's fight. You know, it's it's just this real macho energy that is bonkers. And yeah, it's, any, it's, it's the nobility of like any step out of line in any way, in any form is bad. Right. And everybody has a, I mean, again, everybody, all the noble men have swords on them because that's their mode of protection. And so like everyone to some extent is trained on how to use a sword. Because you're not going to wear it if you don't know how to use it, right? <laughs> and so fencing schools start popping up in the 1500s and the Renaissance to train people how not to die by using these swords. Because you're going to get in a duel, because everyone does at this point in time. And so you might as well know how to use it and try not to die. And to give you, like a raw number of like just how many people were dying um from 1589 to 1607 in France it is estimated that 4000 nobles died in duels and during the reign of uh the the French king from that same period he issued 14,000 pardons to duelists because, again, it's illegal, but no one cares, so I'm just going to pardon you for doing this. So, yeah, uh, one phrase that was used at the time to sum it up was, uh, if divorce is the sacrament of adultery, then duels are the sacrament of murder. Mm. So that's one way to put it. That's an interesting quote. But uh, this is like the time period where like the Three Musketeers or Cyrano de Bergerac would be sent of like just everybody carrying swords, dueling all the time. Yeah. Um, And you start to see like dueling clubs become a thing for gentlemen. Mm You know, part of it is there's like two categories of dueling clubs. One is like a club for people who have competed in a duel at some point, you know, like, ta-da, we survived a duel. We now have social status. We're going to rub shoulders. And then the second category is like a club of people who get together so that way they can duel amongst themselves for the fun of dueling. So yeah, and the goal of that is just like die or be gravely injured in a duel to show how manly you are. And because it's happening so often in the society, they write up rules on how they're going to do it, you know, and uh, so the basic rules and the format of the duel, like, you have to stand there, I have to stand here, we have to use the same weapon, all that gets pieced out in this period, letting people know how what to expect whenever they get into a duel. And so that is how that works. And because training 
four duels with real weapons is kind of dangerous. Um, like, getting stabbed is not fun. And uh, they come up with the brilliant idea of making practice swords that don't actually stab people to practice with in these fencing schools. And so that's where you start to see like fencing blades become a thing. And in seven by 1750 fencing masks become a thing. And so the origins of the modern sport are all the way back there. You start to see elements of what we have to this day. As time progresses, you know, by the 1700s, dueling, although it is still incredibly common, societal perceptions of honor and the justifications for why dueling is okay in a society, they start to be questioned, you know, like the enlightenment is a thing and people are just questioning everything about our societies. And not everyone is wearing a sword on them at all times anymore. And so you start to see major questions about why are we doing this start to pop up. And uh, social mobility becomes a thing. And so nobles aren't, you don't necessarily have to be a noble in order to advance well in society because capitalism is a thing now. And uh, yeah, and firearms just become cheaper, which in a sense gets rid of duels because you don't have swords around anymore. But it also democratizes duels because it's a lot easier to use a gun to kill someone than it is to use a sword. And so you start getting like widely of like lower classes are now able to do duels because mm -hmm. they don't have to know how to use a sword now. And uh, in 1829, an Irishman named Joseph Hamilton published the only approved guide through all stages of a quarrel, which attempted to like, be the definitive rule book on how to negotiate a disagreement. It urged people to try and defuse the situation, but in a worst case scenario, it had the duel as like a necessary evil. And so it explained all aspects of it. And that's held up as like the definitive dueling guide of, like I said, in like Hamilton's 10 dual commandments, you know, it's coming from, that text basically mm. so do you this is a very specific question but do you think because like you said duels were more democratized that it turned into you know the nobles would still use their swords because you know firearms just aren't classy and it's just you know the the lay people can do this right like like a part of the deal of like the nobles then were all snooty about it even more so and that's also what helped kill it off because it's like oh you know why are you being so uppity about killing people so there there definitely is the class aspect to it um so the class aspect is actually most um what's the word evident in the geographical difference between duels in europe versus duels in the united states in north america um because in europe swords remained highly prevalent and they were still used in their dueling culture long you know after firearm dueling had developed and the forms had settled down but in the united states it was almost entirely pistol dueling was the main dueling culture like Aaron Burr, you know, shooting Alexander Hamilton is a pistol duel. You know, that's probably the most famous one in American society. That is. So, yeah. And also it was truly a matter of preference. 
the offending party of the duel got to pick what weapons they fought with. And so if you were more talented with swords, you picked swords. If you were a better shot, you picked pistols. And then the last like differences would be the, the risk difference also, because if you use pistols, you know, these are flint locks or muzzle loaded pistols not the most accurate things in the world. In all likelihood, you're going to go out there if you use pistols, you're not going to actually shoot someone. And so you'll be more likely to survive, preserve your honor, that whole jazz. But if you do get shot, you're probably going to die. Swords, on the other hand, sword duels are fought for the most part, um, you fight until someone bleeds. And so you are someone 100% is going to get injured. But because you have that stopgap of, okay, you cut this person, we can stop dueling now, you are less likely to have a fatal injury. So... You get to pick and choose, really. Too much strategy. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that that's all like the cultural stuff happening at the time. But, uh, you know, let me give you some fun duels uh, from history, from this period of history. Th- this first one is, uh, we'll call it the, again, it's these... French names, I tell you. Um, the the Fournier Dupont affair. So in 1794, in the city of Strasbourg, France, which is on the border of Germany, uh, a man by the name of Captain Fournier, he challenged a young man named Bloom to a duel. And in this duel, Bloom was killed. Later, Fournier was invited to a party. At this party, another captain by the name of Dupont refused to let Fournier enter the house on the account that Fournier had killed Bloom and Bloom was a friend of Dupont. Well, not necessarily a friend. Dupont was mad at Fournier for being in the duel with Bloom because DuPont did not see Bloom and Fournier as social equals or something like that. Long story short, Fournier is incensed at not being allowed to enter this party, and so he challenges DuPont to a duel. They decide to go with swords, and... uh, They fight, they cross steel, Fournier gets stabbed, but even though he is wounded, he does not yield. He is not satisfied. And that is a big thing with duels at the time is you had to go until someone was satisfied that their honor had been preserved. And so he was stabbed, but it was not enough. He wanted to keep fighting. So, because (laughs) they were so equally matched in terms of their skill with swords, you know, they couldn't just keep fighting against each other forever. Um, Or maybe they can. They just have to take breaks every now and then. And so they, they, the gentlemen that they were, agreed that... Should the two of them ever come within a hundred miles of each other, that they would both make the effort to meet halfway and fight another duel. And they go until someone wins. And so, uh, how long do you think that they went at this? Did this become like a I mean, year? It's a hundred like, miles. 
Yeah, I feel like this was like a, oh, our summer homes are kind of close together. And so, yeah, this is a <laughs> yearly thing now. It, or something like that. I mean, they it did occur over several years. Uh, you know, they would duel each other during their travels until one of them got injured and then they would shake hands. They might go and have dinner afterwards and then they say, see you next time. And then they go off on their way until they find out that the other person is close and they fight again. And so this duel started in 1794. It went on like this on and off until 1813. Jeez. So like 20 years. And... In 1813, they both happened to be staying in the same apartment. And so they met up in the room halfway between them and uh, had their duel. DuPont stabbed Fournier again, but this time he stabbed him through the neck and pinned him to the wall. Fortunately for Fournier... He was saved from bleeding out by one of his comrades, his seconds. And uh, upon their next meeting, DuPont decided that enough was enough and that they should move on to pistols. Because we've been fighting for 19 years with swords. We can't kill each other. We got to change things up. And DuPont had intentionally been avoiding using pistols this entire time because Fournier was like a famous marksman at the time. Um, So he was like, I know he's probably going to shoot me, but we got to end this here. So he decided to get a little Fournier. Sorry, no. DuPont got their French names. Uh, who am I talking about? (laughs) Um, Fournier was the better marksman, so DuPont had a trick up his sleeve. Uh, DuPont managed to get Fournier to fire early. Um, you know, because the, in your mind you have the duel, they stand back to back, walk ten paces, turn around, then shoot, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, he managed to get Fournier to fire early on two times in a row. And whenever that happens, you know, they have to reset up and do the whole thing over. And after he missed, after Fournier missed the second time of firing early, DuPont took his pistol, marched straight up to Fournier, put the pistol to his head and said, your life is in my hands but I do not wish to take it. I want this matter to end. So, should you challenge me again, remember that the weapon will be pistols and that I am entitled to the first two shots at a distance of three feet. (laughs) Which is like stone cold right there. Uh, So yeah, the, the duel ended, but that's like the longest duel in history, I guess you could say. Another famous duel from this time period I mentioned earlier was the Alexander Hamilton Aaron Burr duel in 1904, you know, which is 1804, sorry. Um, Which is very strange to, like, copy and paste. I mean, we have Hamilton the musical, obviously, so watch the musical to figure out why they were mad at each other, I guess. But like to copy and paste characters into a modern setting, that would be like Kamala Harris killing the treasury secretary, Janet Yellen, which is like strange to think about. Yeah. Aaron Burr, he's mad at Hamilton for, some perceived political slights and Hamilton's mad at Burr because he like won an election against his father-in-law and some other stuff. Um, 
They fight a duel. Burr shoots and kills Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, this last duel, it, it's not a long story, but it's just fun. Um, in 1808, two Frenchmen, again, the French love to duel. Uh, one was named La Pique, and the other was Grand Pre. And as the story goes, they were both in love slash seeing the same woman. Uh, her name was Mademoiselle Treviette, and she was a dancer at the opera. But uh, they decided, of course, we can't both love the same woman, so we have to fight each other for her, and one of us has to die. But they decided that, you know, just a normal duel would be too boring, I guess. So what they decided to do was... uh they and their second would get into each of the each of these groups would get into a separate hot air balloon go up into the sky and shoot at each other's balloons to try and pop them (laughs) that is something that i would pay to go see and the thing is there was an audience there to watch this because hot air balloons were a novelty so people didn't even know like they were going there to fight each other they just thought they were going on like a hot air balloon race or something <laughs> but um yeah so Lapique shot first and he missed and so then grand pre got to shoot and his shot hit the mark and uh Lapique's balloon crashed and killed both its occupants, which really sucks for your second because they're kind of just in the balloon with you. Like, they're not shooting. They aren't part of this beef. They just have to be supporting their man, you know? So, um, but yeah, that that's just a weird one that happened. Hmm. Yeah, like give, that, give that second an out or something. Like, have them in, like, a smaller safety balloon or something. Right. I I think in this particular scenario, they were the ones that were like driving the balloon while the other person was shooting. So that's no fun. You gotta, you gotta drive and shoot. Oh yeah. 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 That's the old time. Hello y'all. This is Kelvin from the future here. This is actually where we're going to end it for this week's episode. Uh, it's only part one of our conversation on uh, the history of fencing. So to hear the rest of it, you'll just have to come back for our next one. Stay tuned. So I'll go ahead and close this out. Thank you for listening and I hope you had a good time. Please tell your friends about us. If you like what you heard, we're always in the need of new listeners. Our music is by mountaineer you can find their stuff and more on upbeat.io and i will make sure to put some of the sources for this super episode in the show notes part of it will be in this week's episode and then part of it will be in the next episode for further research if you so choose to do so on this topic as always we like to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on land that rightfully belongs to the kiowa comanche tonkwa as well as other indigenous peoples the clip from the start of the episode is from monte python and the holy grail the black knight scene where he's trying to cross the bridge very funny and uh if you have any questions suggestions for future episodes or you just want to say hi you can reach out to us at history spelunkers that's history s-p-e-l-u-n-k-e-r-s at gmail.com Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time we hop down the rabbit hole. Bye-bye!